Today I have the privilege of talking to you about a passage or one of the passages that's been fairly key for me um, over my faith. Um, unlike what it appears to many people, um, well, it can, you can often get the impression that faith is guided a lot by people's passion and the way they feel. For me, that's not true. For the majority of my life, it's been an intellectual exercise for me to pursue Jesus. I don't do things because I feel like doing them. I'm going to kick that over any minute now. I do them because I'm convinced that that's what God wants me to do. I remain in the faith, not because it feels good, because quite often it doesn't feel anything for me. And for a lot of people, you've got to keep doing what you know is right, even when it feels bad. As we'll see in this passage, that's part of it. So... If you're one of the people who looks at all these people saying, I get up and I feel God and he's with me and I've got all this motivation because I'm feeling like God's with me and you're thinking, no, I don't feel like that. Then just so you know, there are people out there who also don't feel like that. And our component, if you do have emotions for faith, you're very lucky and consider yourself blessed. It's a lot easier to do things, I'm sure, if you're passionate about them, but I don't actually know. For me, it's an intellectual exercise that I want to do it. So, anyway, so we're going to go to, before we start on the passage that I'm speaking of, we want to go to Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 14. I'm on the wrong page. Okay, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're going to talk about Christ's resurrection today and it's the key point of our faith. If anyone ever doubts your faith, you need to be able to defend the resurrection because that is the key point of our faith, that Jesus was raised. If he wasn't raised, he was just a good teacher. He was just one of the many prophets that we see. He was just another religious leader. Can you defend the fact that he was raised? Or do you just not, not think about it? For me, a lot of the time over the years, the only reason I stayed in with the faith is because I could never at any point deny the fact that I believe Jesus was raised from the dead. I can't come up with a better option than the fact that he was raised by God. And so we're going to look at Matthew 27, verses 32 to the end of the chapter, which is one of the views of the crucifixion and helps us to establish why we believe that Christ was actually raised from the dead. So, then the soldiers and the governors took Jesus into... The, no, that's the wrong one. Oh, and, and as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, which means place of, the, place of a skull... They gave him wine to drink mingled with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among themselves, casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. So at that point, when they crucified him, so when they'd nailed him to the cross and put him up, he wasn't dead yet. Just So he's still alive at this point. And they put up... up Uh, above his head the charge against him which read this is Jesus the king of the Jews 
And at that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. And in the same way, the chief priests and also among, along with the scribes and elders were mocking him saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel, let him come down, now come down from the cross and we shall believe in him. He trusts in God, let him deliver him now and if he takes pleasure in him, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers also who had been crucified with him were casting the same insults at him. And now from the sixth hour darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lam shami. That is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. And immediately, and immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with the sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. And the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, truly, this was the Son of God. And many women were looking on from a distance and who had followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him, among whom was Mary Magdalene, along with Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea called Joseph, who himself had become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And when Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against it, the entrance of the tomb, and went away. Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary was sitting opposite the grave. Now the, on the next day, which is the one after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. And they said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, the deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure, along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. So Matthew is only one view on the crucifixion, and we need all the views of the four Gospels to understand the evidence that we have for us. The key ones are Matthew and, um, and Luke. They provide the details we need to back up the claim that Jesus was risen from the dead. Uh, Mark gives a very brief account and John just echoes some of the, the uh, details we already have. But we need to 
consider what 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 what, what do other people say happened to Jesus? There are, I think, four main um, main theories. The first one is that Jesus was an angelic being, and so he didn't feel any pain, um, and so he didn't really die either. He just sort of went to sleep, I guess, and woke up. Um, the Gospels are pretty clear that Jesus had all the earthly traits. He needed to eat. He got tired. He could cry when his friends died. They have every evidence that Jesus acted like a normal person. I don't think we can consider that he's an angelic being. He suffered. When we read about the suffering that he undergoes, we see him in pain. We see him wanting to avoid the pain in Gethsemane. He's aware of what's before him. So, definitely human. Um, the variation on that is that Jesus was an alien. Again, I don't think there's any evidence to say that he's an alien. Um, I'm not even sure there's any evidence that there are aliens. Maybe they are, I don't know. Um, not, not too many people argue that if they're trying to be sensible about it, but there are a couple of people who would argue that. Perhaps the, uh, um, the other favourite one is that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He just either swooned, like fainted, or he faked it. He pretended to die. From Luke, we find out the details that put that theory to rest. The Romans make sure people who are crucified are dead. And the reason they do that is because executioners get into a lot of trouble if they say someone's dead and they're not. Usually they get dead really quick, in the same unpleasant way that they were supposed to kill the first person. In Luke, we see that the executioners put a spear up through his rib, up through below his ribs into his heart, and out comes blood and water, indicating that Jesus' heart had actually ruptured at that stage. And if that hadn't killed him, laying wrapped up in fairly heavy amount of spices and wrappings that they put on people in the grave, wouldn't have done him any good. Three days laying in the grave by himself. Um, and it's unlikely, even if he survived that, that he could have rolled the stone away by himself. These stones were big round things that are slightly up a hill. They're rolled down into it, and it took a number of people to move them. A single person wasn't able to move them. Um, and they weren't really designed to be opened from the inside because it's a grave, and that's not really the normal use case for graves. So it's unlikely, very unlikely, that he swooned and then was magically healed in a, in a dank cave and then somehow recovered enough strength to move the stone, get out and beat off the guard by himself and uh, then get to, um, to make all his appearances. The other favourite one is everybody went to the wrong tomb. Mary was obviously upset on the Sunday and so she went to the wrong tomb and it's empty. And the disciples who raced down because they didn't believe her went to the same wrong tomb and it was also empty. And the Pharisees who didn't believe that Jesus had raised, they went to the wrong tomb. Um, Joseph never corrected anyone because he thought, you know. So it's unlikely that everybody at that time went to the wrong tomb and decided Jesus had been raised. I don't see how people can believe it other than it's convenient to not believe that Jesus was raised from the, from the dead. And the other one is that somebody stole the body. Um, the, you see in the end where the, the Pharisees are asking for a guard to make sure that that didn't happen because they thought it was a possibility. Um, 
The disciples are busy cowering in the upper room. They're, they're afraid. The person they followed has just been executed. They're worried about themselves. They're not in any state to raise an army, or even not even in a state to raise a, a gang large enough to fend off a Roman guard. Romans were, yeah, they were pretty tough. Nowadays, the US Marines still use some of the Roman training methods to train their Marines. The Romans were tough. The Romans um, got into a lot of trouble. If they had let someone scare them off, the Roman processes would have dealt with them very harshly. We see in the next chapter that they go to the Pharisees and say, what are you going to do? And the Pharisees tell them the story they're supposed to say. Say the disciples stole it and we'll keep you out of trouble. We're not told how they keep them out of trouble. Um, I imagine it was large amounts of bribe. Um, that would be seem to be the only thing that would work. Um, so that's the story. The other theory is that the Pharisees stole his body. But if the Pharisees stole the body, all they would have had to do to prove that the disciples were lying about Jesus being raised was, fight, was bring out the body. So the, the Pharisees wouldn't have stolen it. What would they have done with it? And even if the Pharisees had stolen it, it seems unlikely that 12 of them, oh, sorry, 10 of them would have been crucified as martyrs without one of them giving away where the body was. It's not impossible that one or two people, we see suicide bombers do this crazy stuff all the time, but it's hard to keep a secret. If you look at Watergate, all they had to do was say nothing and they would have got away with it. But they couldn't even keep a secret for a couple of, for a couple of days. So it's unlikely that the the disciples being who they were would have been able to keep that secret. Uh, at least all of them wouldn't have. Leaving us with an option that Jesus was in fact raised from the dead. He was who he said he was. He was the son of God and his death was significant for our faith. Now, there might be other theories out there. I don't know. They're the only theories I'm aware of. If you, if you are aware of another one, I'd be interested to hear about it. Um, but I highly recommend you start reading some of the books. There's a number of books, good books about this. I'm only giving a really brief summary. I've probably forgotten some of the interesting details. I found those books very interesting. There was a good one by uh, Morrison, I think, Who Moved the Stone, which was a couple of civil engineers who talk about how they sealed the grave up and why it wasn't possible for one person inside to move it out. Um, there's the, the classic by Joshua Dow Evidence that demands a verdict, has a section on dealing with the crucifixion. That's a very significant book because he wasn't a Christian when he started that journey. He recognised that all he had to do was prove that the, that the resurrection didn't happen and he wouldn't have to believe. And I got, had the privilege of hearing him talk at Sydney University and it was very fascinating to hear his journey on that proof and after that. Um, so that, that's a great book. And there's some others which I can't remember the names of. Um, but if you're interested in following those details, I recommend before you run to Kurong and buy them, check with the older people in church. Because like me, they've probably got a whole bookshelf of books of, that are quite interesting like that, that they're looking at and thinking, oh, maybe I should dump them. And if one of those books is of interest, I'm sure they'd be happy for you to read it, probably be happy for you to take it away and <laughs> stop them having to worry about throwing it away. Um, but pursue it and check it so that you can not just say, oh, I know the resurrection happened because someone at church told me. You need to be able to prove it yourself. And over the years, I've found 
I had some interesting conversations with uh, Michael and Corey over the years uh, about it, and I always come down to, well, all you have to do, let me just remind you, all you have to do is prove the resurrection didn't happen. Interesting enough, Michael doesn't want to talk about it. He refused to talk about it because he understands that if he can't prove it didn't happen, there's a response required. Corey worked at it, worked at it, worked at it. In the end, he just said, well, uh, I've just decided that because I haven't seen anyone raised from dead, it couldn't have happened, so I'm not going to believe it. He didn't have anything else. To, so, and that's up to him. That's fine. But often, if you find someone who's pushing against Christianity, just ask them to look into it. What happened on that day? What happened on that morning? And be prepared to answer the things they bring up, because they will come up with an alternate solution if they don't want to believe in Christ. There is other people who are risen from the grave. There are, in that passage. Well, it said there. I thought yeah. it was the first time I realised that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that people were risen from the grave and went into the city. Absolutely. And that, the first time I've read that. Lazarus, that's right. But Corey's point was, he hadn't seen it. The way he, the way he explained it to me, he adds value to different pieces of evidence and in this instance he decided to allocate a large value to the fact that he hadn't seen it which was because he wanted not to believe he had chosen not to believe so he may, and at that point I said okay I can't convince you to change your mind if you've just decided not to believe and that's fine That God gives us the choice Jesus is very clear that we all have the choice and so people have the choice not to believe it's hard for us to live with that especially the people we love. But that is the choice God gives them. That doesn't mean to say we can stop loving them or we should stop loving them. But, yeah, urge them to look into the evidence if they're, they're saying, oh, it couldn't possibly be true. There was another... One of the fantastic books I got out of Evidence of the Man's Verdict's bibliography was this one done by a lawyer so long ago about how how you would have to assume, based on the legal code of the American justice systems at that time he wrote it, um, that Jesus rose from the dead and that it was true. It's a fascinating book. It's written in old English. It's really hard to read, but it was really good. And then I loaned it to someone and they didn't give it back and I've, I've lost it. I'm going to have to buy another copy now. Uh, something like that. Faith is really of the heart anyway, isn't it? It's not... People will... Back up your arguments, whatever that they want to believe. Yes. Unless God opens their eyes, touches their, touches their heart, removes the scales, nothing can really happen. Indeed. And, and, that's what we need. and when we're pointing people to the evidence, we then need to be really utterly praying for them that God will open their heart while they look at it. We'll see in a minute about the centurions. The centurions saw all this stuff happen and they said, surely this is the Son of God. We need to be praying that when people look into it, when they take it seriously, and they're confronted with it, they will see, God will open their eyes to see. We can't convince them. It's unlikely I could ever logically argue anyone to believe in God. It's unlikely you could. Um, it's unlikely that our emotional passion, when you know God, you'll, you'll have this great feeling and you'll feel he's with you. It's like, and they're going, well, that's fine for you, but I'm not sure, I, you know, how do I get that feeling? Well, I've got to believe in God, but I don't believe in God, so... It becomes a bit messy. It's always not us. It's always God that does the work in their hearts. And that's why we don't need to worry too much if our words aren't exactly right. It doesn't mean to say we shouldn't be working at making them as best we can. We've got to do our part as well. But 
ultimately, our success or failure in evangelism is based on the Holy Spirit and our willingness to trust him and open our mouths. So that's the key part of this passage is, is about the resurrection. But there's some other stuff that I found interesting, um, especially since um, not 2019 when I had a really bad back problem and I, under, I, I suddenly discovered what agony was. Until then, I'd led a fairly painless life. I was so bad at sport, I never got injured because no one thought in, you know, no one gave me the ball and no one from the other team would bother tackling me because it was their, it's their advantage to I had the ball. <laughs> so I never actually got injured. So I didn't understand what pain was. Even though I had, I had a motorcycle accident, I came off, I hurt my knee, I damaged my wrist, but there was not all, actually a lot of pain. It was more of sitting, I was sort of sitting abstract watching, oh, my bike's burning, well, that's nice. Um, I don't know whether that's shock or whatever, but there was, there was no real pain. So I had no way of identifying. So I read, would read these passages about Jesus' crucifixion and his agony, but it's like I couldn't relate. I, my imagination wasn't good enough to link me into that. After 2019, these passages are much more real to me um, because Christ embraces the suffering God has for him. He refuses the drugs that they offer him to take some of the pain away. In Gethsemane, he doesn't run away. In Luke, we're told, before, a long time before this, he sets his face towards Jerusalem. He didn't have to. He knew what was coming. He could have just said, oh, maybe I'll just uh, go over to Bethlehem now. Uh, Jerusalem's nice, but Bethlehem's better this time of year. Um, he accepted the suffering that God was going to have for him. He didn't want it. In Gethsemane, we see him praying against it. I don't want this, but I'm willing to go for it. And we have to avoid the mindset of the martyrs. There's a number of um, cults in early Christian things that believed that the only way you could be saved was to be martyred. And so you've got these historical documents of people going out and basically poking the Roman bear and saying, come on, martyr me, martyr me. Yeah, yeah, come on, come on, because that's the only way I can be saved. That's certainly not what the Bible teaches. And certainly it's okay. And we often read about Christians that Christianity spread because when the persecution in Jerusalem got too much, most of the Christians said, oh, yeah, but yeah, let's get out of here. This is not, this is not worth it. I'm not, I, don't, I don't want to be persecuted like this. And that's how the Christianity spread. And that was a good thing. Most of the time I think it's all right for us to remove ourselves from suffering and pain, persecution, but not always. We need to seek God and say, is it your will that I stay here? Are they persecuting me because of my faith? And is it because they're, your, your, your spirit is nudging them and I need to stay here? I don't know how you'll get, I don't know how God will com communicate to you whether or not it is appropriate for you to stay within that suffering or not. But our first reaction shouldn't be to leave. I mean, we live in a world where we can, you know, if you're persecuted at work, you could just quit, find another job quit and live off the first start or whatever they call it now wouldn't, wouldn't be easy but you could but sometimes God wants us to stay in environments which are not great for us because he wants us to be a, minister, a light in that, in that darkness but Jesus and sometimes he doesn't even want us to, to mute the suffering I mean that's the, that's the bit that became hard to me when I'm sitting there in agony because of my back I can't imagine not taking that the, the green pen they gave me it was nice. It was a really good... It's, it's a really strong drug to the point where I floated to the ambulance and 
And um, when they got me out of the hospital, I had this pen, it was dead. And for hours, as, as the pain wears off, I'm sucking on it just in case there's anything left in it. <laughs> so I can't imagine, um, it's hard to imagine being resolute enough to say, no, I'm, I'm in agony here, I'm, I'm just gonna live with it. And it's, it's even more than that. Jesus hung on the cross, he yields up his spirit. At any stage, he could have come down. Imagine being there, you're in pain. The pain is unbearable. And you have the power to say, I want this to stop. But God doesn't. It's hard for me to imagine me being able to say, I'm going to stop it. And realising that after 2019, realise how, in inverted commas, how weak I am around that area, it makes me worry that if persecution came here, what would I do? It's a real concern. Physically, I'm terrible, terribly weak. Low pain threshold, all sorts of things. I don't know. Hopefully I will do better than I think I will, if, that can, if that's what comes around. But I don't know. When I was younger, I was arrogant enough to think, oh, yeah, I just, you know, you just wear it, it's okay. Because I had no concept of pain. You just wear it. You just distance yourself from it, it's okay. Sorry, after 2019, I no longer think that that's possible for me. Um, I imagine there are some people who got different pain thresholds or different abilities but that's yeah that's certainly not me um, the other thing we see is that the temple curtain is is torn from top to bottom it's not a little tear it's a huge tear and that's where we see that God has act, opened access to him that curtain was to stop access from people other than the priests we're given access at Christ's death through him to God directly so it's important that we remember that we can come to God and that's the significance of Easter, the significance of the, of the death. It's not the significance of the resurrection, it's the significance of Christ's death. And then we see the hardened soldiers who testify to God when they see all this stuff. Everybody sees all this stuff, but the only people we're told say, surely he was the son of God, not the people who mock him, not his disciples, but the hardened soldiers who really shouldn't have been moved by it at all. Different soldiers. I don't know that they were the soldiers who were guarding the tomb. They could have been. There's probably not a lot of Romans. But these are the soldiers who are at the bottom of the crucifixion, not the ones who Pilate said, take a guard. Well, we don't know that they're, whether they're the same ones who Pilate gave as a guard. And he talks about the seal, the Roman seal. Breaking the Roman seal was a pretty big crime. So when we think about all that stuff, we need to take the opportunity to, to pray for our non-Christian friends and also possibly to try and invite them to something where they can hear from that evidence, as well as preparing our hearts to defend the crucifixion. And that I couldn't mention, I had to mention, as Michelle said, the resurrection of these other saints. Strange and bizarre. That's the only reference to that event. None of the other Gospels mention it. We're not given any details on it. We assume that they rose and like Lazarus they died again so it wasn't the second resurrection it was just a resurrection um, we introduced to the concept of Hebrews time that passage when they're risen is actually supposed I, one of the commentaries suggested it's actually on the day that Jesus rose it's not the day it's not when Jesus was crucified so the earthquake happens and all this but that's a different day 
the, Jew, the Jews had a different way of thinking about time than what we do and recording it. But other than that, I couldn't find any... No one seems to make a solid statement on that about the resurrection of other people. I couldn't find anything that says what they thought it means, and I have no idea. Um, other than to say, God is powerful, and that's about all I... I don't think... Like they all just got out and said, woohoo, let's go have a party! And then they got the Oh, it says it says saints, and I, I got the impression, but it's only my impression. I couldn't find anyone who backed this up that they were actually local. They had only been relatively recently dead, and they were they, they termed as saints, certain saints. So they weren't just anybody; they weren't the Barabbases of the world. Um, but one assumes that they appeared in the temple and talked. That's how people know about it. But why did Matthew include it? I don't know. It's, it's one of those mysteries. Um, if anyone finds a good reference on it, I'd love to read it. But, you know, I've only got a limited library. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those passages you just glance over. It's not, because it's not key to the message of that passage. But um, it is it is interesting. It's partly there, I guess, to demonstrate God's power um, and also to remind people that it's not just Jesus who will be raised at some stage. And Corinthians 15 is a good Good, Tracy's, uh, good, a good statement on how we're supposed to approach the resurrection and why it's important. Because if Jesus didn't rise, rock, didn't rise from the dead, we're not going to either. And if that's our hope, we need to be able to prove. That. So spend some time over the next couple of weeks. Maybe read some stuff before Easter. Um, if you want to try and get hooked into the suffering, watch the Passion of the Christ. That'll destroy your day. Um, it does. It's a, it's a fantastic example of it, and. The scene in it that convinced me the most that it was sort of realistic was there's a whole bunch of guards watching Jesus being scourged and a couple of them turn their heads away as though this was a tough punishment. Even people who had to watch it didn't necessarily want to. And then they've got the, the other people who are administering it, the sort of sadists who enjoy that sort of thing. It was just... So... Good, and it's, there's a whole bunch of mystical stuff too showing the devil running around or something. I didn't understand that bit, but never mind. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good movie to try and drive home what Christ suffered and uh, on our behalf. Um, that's me, and I think that's the last sermon on Matthew. Um, so we'll be doing Nate's thing for the next three weeks, and I don't know where we're going after that. Thank you very much. It's all yours, Keith.